1: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'm joined by Mark Rifkin, professor in the Department of English and Women's and Gender Studies program at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He's also the incoming president of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, the seventh annual conference of which is happening next June in Washington, D.C. The author of five books, Rifkin's most recent, just published from the University of Minnesota Press, is called Settler Common Sense, Queerness and Everyday Colonialism in the American Renaissance. In this densely argued book, Rifkin explores three of the most canonical authors in the American Literary Awakening. Hawthorne, Thoreau, and Melville, demonstrating how even as their texts mount queer critiques of the state, they take for granted, even depend upon, conceptions of place, politics, and personhood normalized in the settler state's engagement with indigenous peoples. Rifkin's exegesis is relevant far beyond 19th century literary studies. As settler colonialism gains currency in left and academic circles as a descriptor, of the present reality in the United States, Canada, Israel, and elsewhere, there's a tendency to identify its workings only in the encounter between the colonizers and the colonized, the state and indigenous peoples. This is a mistake, Rifkin warns. None of the novels he interrogates here deal specifically with native people, but colonialism is not, he writes, a dynamic that inheres only to native bodies but rather is a quote phenomenon that shapes non-native subjectivities intimacies articulations and sensations separate from whether or not something recognizably indian comes into view colonialism is thus a common sense i hope you enjoy our discussion mark rifkin welcome to new books in native american studies thanks for joining me
0: thank you so much for having me on it's
1: a great pleasure thanks so Today, we'll be discussing your brand new book. It's called Settler Common Sense, Queerness and Everyday Colonialism in the American Renaissance. It's just out from the University of Minnesota Press. And I want to begin with that phrase, which is the title of your book, Settler Common Sense. And I know its its full meanings unfold over the course of the entire book. But as a way to begin our conversation, uh, how would you describe the term? How did you arrive at, at that title? And, and what are you trying to say with it?
0: Well, what I was trying to get at was a way of understanding how settler colonialism works that wasn't about a set of intentions, that wasn't about uh, a set of conscious commitments to uh, anti-Indian racism or to white supremacy or to the principles of conquest it's trying to think about how settler colonialism operates for many, many non-natives. In fact, probably for non-natives most of the time, settler colonialism operates uh, as uh, something which is not, in fact, conscious, right? which is about participation in um, uh, social processes that work to uh, displace Native self-determination that work as part of the long historical dynamics of the displacement of Native peoples, but participation in those processes is not necessarily conscious. Uh, and perhaps even if asked, many non-Natives would speak out against uh, conquest, uh, but still in everyday ways uh, participate in social, political, personal, sensory dynamics uh, that actively contribute to settler colonialism. And so part of it, the, the sort of coming to this phrase and this concept, uh, uh, part of that, that intellectual process was uh, thinking about how to understand everyday forms of citizenship and just being in the settler state, you know, in, in the case of this book, the US, how, how to think about those kinds of everyday dynamics. And if settler colonialism is, as uh, many scholars have suggested, is ubiquitous, right, it's as is often quoted, um, Patrick Wolfe's phrase, right, it's a structure, not an event, then we could understand it as uh, permeating all aspects of life, but if we're going to think about it that way, and for many, many people, there isn't a conscious commitment to settlement, and there isn't an um, uh, expressed uh, uh, belief in the dynamics of conquest, then how can we think about the sort of quotidian presence of settler colonial dynamics in ways that aren't about conscious commitment, that are about everyday processes that are about the routine, that are about how people uh, feel and understand themselves, and by I mean non-natives, how they feel, understand themselves, engage with the environment in ways that uh, uh, make possible settler colonialism without it being a set of uh, uh, philosophies or ideologies or ideas or commitments of which they were aware. Of course, conscious right racism, conscious commitment to conquest is present, mm. but that's, it seems to me to be a limit to how useful that can be in thinking about uh, uh, the ubiquity and the uh, ordinariness of settler colonialism. Um, hmm. it's
1: yeah. a, I want to return at the end of our conversation or towards the end of it, um, given that that really kind of cogent um, explanation of, of how we might go about uh, challenging something like common sense, whatever the common sense might be, and extricating from it, because you sort of suggest some pathways in the book. Um, but as we get into the, the text you write here itself, uh, you're the author of several books, but correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time... You've written where the primary sources, the texts, you know that you're considering and analyzing, are not by or even necessarily overtly about uh, indigenous people. In fact, uh, settler common sense, as we'll um, discuss, takes on some of the most famous some some of the most canonized literary productions of the 19th century. How did you? Uh, arrive at this project? What's your sort of intellectual or even personal journey to moving from writing about Native self-representation to taking on um, this canon of the 19th century?
0: Well, I mean, I will say that that in, in prior work, I have uh, uh, written about non-Native writing, mm-hmm. Um, so uh, writing about um, Tejano, uh, writing um, in the wake of um, Texas independence and the annexation of Texas, uh, writing about you know James Fenmore Cooper and um, Catherine Sedgwick and Beth, uh, excuse me, and um, Leslie Feinberg. Um, in uh, when did Indians become straight? But you're right that that. Uh, what I was interested in in those texts tended to be uh, their representations of Native people. But, but in terms of the intellectual genealogy of this project, part of what interested me in engaging with those texts was not so much uh, what image they offered of Native people, although that's part of it, but it's how Native people figured into a broader set of uh, ideological commitments uh, which seemed to in some way shape or form uh, fortify settler colonial dynamics um, so the the those previous engagements do in some way set up what I'm doing hmm. in settler common sense though those projects uh, were on the whole, uh, as projects far more centered around Native s- self-representation than this one is. So I think part of the, the intellectual move is then what happens when we're not centering Native self-representation as uh, the means of understanding textual dynamics of settler colonialism? What happens when the the uh, image of the Native, uh, whether it's self-image or Image as uh, portrayed by non-natives, when that image of native people is not the central object of analysis. So I think that there are elements of that in my prior work, but here it's really kind of front, uh, front and center. Uh, and uh, part of the the turn to this project was um, that I was asked to do uh, a piece. I was invited to to write a piece for the. Um, Uh, a Blackwell Companion to American Literary Studies, and I started thinking about, well, what would it mean to think about settler subjectivity, to think about settler forms of sensation and settler everyday life? And uh, so some of the writing in the book on um, William Apis and sort of what what I suggest is his analysis of... um, what I ultimately call settler common sense. And then Henry David Thoreau in his performing of what I come to call settler common sense. uh, Thinking about those two in that essay became a kind of entree to thinking about, well, what might a larger project that thinks about 19th century writing look like. And that sort of grew out of an engagement with Thoreau. But part of the turn to Thoreau in that uh, piece for the collection was uh, that I was trained as a 19th century Americanist right, in an English department. And so there was often when I was writing about forms of native self representation or about um, non-fictional texts by uh, native writers and Mexican American writers uh, that I repeatedly got the question, uh, both in my department, but also when I was on the job market, versions of, but is it literary? And wondering kind of what does that mean? And so in turning to this project is thinking about, well, what does it mean if we are focusing on kind of hyper uh, canonical literary texts, but thinking about their participation within settler colonial dynamics. So it's kind of a returning to the scene of my graduate study, but from a different angle. Hmm. Uh, and um, the, in some ways it's, uh, I think of it as as uh, uh, a joke, right, on um, my uh, time in graduate school. Uh, that's like, okay, well in some ways I, th- you know, I think that this is the book that uh, folks wanted me to write, mm. but not. <laughs> Um, So and this is this is the book that engages the literary in a way I could only do once I'd done significant work thinking about uh, U.S. Indian law and policy how native dispossession happens Thinking and theorizing about native sovereignty and self-determination and the forms it takes and the various kinds of textualities right that emerge from Native uh, uh, efforts to articulate sovereignty and self-determination only after having done that work can I then come to these literary texts and think about how they're enmeshed within settler colonial dynamics. And also in uh, uh, a sort of fonder vein, uh, after writing The Erotics of Sovereignty, which was all about contemporary queer Native writing, I kind of yearn to go back to the 19th century in some ways. uh, I always find myself turning back to the 19th century as a kind of uh, intellectual home as the area in which uh, I originally was trained.
1: And your decision to um, focus particularly on authors who are writing about New England, New York, the Northeast uh, in this 19th century, uh, is that basically by coincidence of the fact that these were the canonical writers of the time, or is there another reason why you wanted to uh Center your work in that region.
0: Well, it's not canonical, though, that people writing about uh, New York and New England are the ones who became canonical. Hmm. I mean, so the the fact that the people who get chosen as canonical figures to kind of represent uh, the flowering of American culture and letters in the 19th century, the emergence of this kind of literary nationalism, uh, it's not all that surprising when that happens in the early to mid-20th century that the choice is uh, New England and Northern writers, Right, that it's not Southern or Western or Southwestern or California right, writers. Uh, so I do think that there's a relationship between those things. Uh, but for me, the, uh, the principal reason was, kind of as you're suggesting, that they are hypercanonical, uh, that uh, I chose them uh, because they are at the heart of what is still considered to be the, this mainstream of 19th century American literary studies. If one is being trained as a 19th century Americanist, uh, it would be uh, absolutely uh, verboten to say that one was not familiar mm. with Hawthorne and Melville and Thoreau, whereas it's in some ways still uh, perfectly acceptable to know very little or nothing about William Apis or John Rollin Ridge or Sarah Winnemucca. Uh, So so I think it's because these texts are from the heart of the canon, but also given the fact that they're writing about uh, New England and New York, these are places where the presumption was that um, Indians had vanished or were in the process of vanishing, uh, that any uh, uh, Native communities, collectives that persisted were merely remnants and this was the term that they used in uh, the 19th century remnant Uh, so that sense that this was a uh, thoroughly de-Indianized space or one in which native remainders uh, were soon to be gone uh, I think also shapes uh, my sense of the value of turning to these texts to think about how um, Settler texts uh, very much animate uh, what it is uh, that they're doing in terms of uh, their conscious commitments. They're not the texts are not consciously committed to settler colonialism, but settler colonial legalities, geographies, histories, in an ongoing way, provide the milieu in which these texts' conscious commitments uh, become intelligible and gain force and momentum. Mm. And you bring to bear
1: on these texts not only um, a framework of understanding settler colonialism and settler, settler dynamics, but also uh, queer theory and through the lens of understanding queer elements or dynamics, as you say at play. How do these modes of analysis work in concert for you here? Uh, you know, the subtitle of your book is Queerness and Everyday Colonialism.
0: Well, part of uh, uh, how I come to uh, thinking about queerness here. Uh, is uh, one, a kind of habit of mind, right? That uh, uh, one of the things that I do as a scholar is um, uh, I, I think through queer readings and queer methodologies. It's it's part of the, my uh, uh, kind of tool set or my habit of, of thought. Um, so I bring that with me. But also that uh, one thing that uh, I've been doing for a while is thinking about how... Um, Ideas connected to queer theory, um, identities uh, articulated as queer political projects and understand themselves to be queer, how these things might be dependent on or contribute to uh, the dispossession of Native peoples, how they might be invested in the continued existence of um, the U.S. nation state as a settler state in ways that they're not necessarily uh, aware of. Uh, So thinking about how um, things queer, um, non-Native things queer, are um, inscribed within uh, uh, the dynamics of colonialism against Native peoples has been a sort of longer term uh, uh, intellectual project of mine. And here in thinking about these texts, that one thing that struck me. And again, it's, it's a, a habit of my own mind to think through um, uh, queer frameworks. Uh, but what struck me in reading these texts was their queerness, uh, the fact that there were these kind of odd dynamics of gender, desire, homemaking, family, that forms of uh, what would have been understood as perversity, uh, depravity in the 19th century were all over these texts and trying to think about well what does that mean and some of the interlocutors that I'm hoping for I mean that that certainly emerged uh, for me and that were part of the writing of this text but also that I'm hoping will be part of the audience are folks uh, who are doing 19th century literary studies who, you know and who are doing queer studies to sort of call on them to think about questions of settler colonial colonialism to suggest that these are not uh, disjunct because precisely the emergence of uh, and circulation of forms of perversity and depravity, including, uh, you know, masturbation, bachelorhood, spinsterhood, uh, non-nuclear forms of family, forms of communalism, that all of those elements circulating in these texts that could be understood as queer that all of those it seemed to me could also be understood as as given uh, form given direction in these texts uh, through sets of um, you know settler processes right that the kinds of um, critique in which these texts are engaged, the kind of ethics that they imagine, which we might understand as queer, as opening room for these forms of what would have been understood at the time as perversity and depravity, that the the very opening of room for these dynamics seems to depend on taking the sovereignty of the settler state as given, depend on taking the forms of um, land use and notions of personhood that emerge out of U.S. law and U.S. law that itself develops through Indian policy and the dispossession of Native peoples, that these texts seem to require taking those forms of property and personhood and place as given in the very ways that they open up room for what we might call forms of queerness. Uh, So uh, it seemed to me that that those patterns in these texts, right? I come to see them in this way partially because of my kind of, you know, queer method, queer theoretical habit of mind, but also as part of this longer intellectual project of thinking about how non-native articulations of queer critique uh, might not be aware of how they remain implicitly inscribed within uh, uh, settler colonial geographies, imaginaries, ideologies, etc
1: mm. so let's let 's dive into um, some of these novels we'll see see if we can get through all three but you begin with the House of Seven Gables, published by uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne in eighteen fifty one which is sort of set against the backdrop or certainly alludes to a very long um, insurgency between uh, well among small-scale landowners uh, in in southern Maine can you give us just a sort of a rough sketch of that conflict and um, and its significance to to Hawthorne's House of Seven Gables and, and then you know how are you reading it
0: Sure. So, uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, you have what basically amounted to guerrilla warfare by, uh, folks who were, uh, renting land in, uh, sort of Southern Maine and on, uh, uh, Patents, Right, which were held by elite families dating back to the 17th century. And what you have is these small landholders who had come uh, mostly up from Massachusetts because of the uh, land crisis there, which emerged throughout the 18th century. Uh, they're on these these patents. And they're the ones working the land. And the owners are saying that uh, if these people who are working the land want to stay there, they need to purchase the land from the owner. And the response is that the owner has done nothing to improve the land, that the claim to the land is merely a paper title granted uh, under uh, uh, the king, right, when the the, uh, uh, still colonies, still the American colonies, and then reaffirmed by the state, Uh, uh, and it's the state of Massachusetts because Maine was still part of Massachusetts at that point after the revolution. And uh, as part of this insurgency uh, that they uh, call themselves white Indians, right? Mm -hmm. That they are uh, drawing on Indianness as part of this uh, fight against uh, the landlords. And this becomes part of House of the Seven Gables uh, because there's this uh, plot in the text in which the pensions who are the uh, owners of the House of the Seven Gables, have this supposed claim to land in Maine, which is land that would have been covered by um, one of the big patents uh, against which the small landholders were fighting. Uh, And that the deed to this land went missing in the 17th century, and they're trying to find it. It's eventually found and then proclaimed worthless. Mm. And there's a moment at the beginning of the novel where um, Hawthorne says that uh, the actual settlers on the land... Uh, who had engaged in, as he puts it, sturdy toil uh, in nature, in the wilderness, uh, that they would have found the paper claim to this land by elites like the Pynchons to be utterly ridiculous. So that sense of um, actual work on the land as providing actual work on the land in the wilderness uh, as providing a right to that land, this Lockean argument uh, provides the ethical frame For the novel's critique of the pensions and pension landedness and speculation and uh, elite wealth and the extension of wealth and ownership uh, unchanged through generations. And uh, where uh, uh, my argument comes in is um, to say, to specifically connect back up uh, the. Novel's discussion of the Pynchons to this main plot, to sort of tease out the main plot, to reconnect it to the Lockean arguments which are being made by settlers in Maine in this period, and to talk about how the uh, imagination of these kind of state of nature Arguments, right, that those who labor in the state of nature have the right to the land, that uh, presupposes the existence of uh, English and then U.S. sovereignty over that space, but yet speaks as if there were some connection to the land uh, itself, which weren't mediated by the sovereignty of England or the U.S., as if there were some unmediated connection directly to the soil, such Mm -hmm. that. Uh, one could have claims to land which could be utterly opposed to the sort of intrusive titles uh, which the government offers. One of the interesting twists here is that the very thing which has gone missing that the Pensions are looking for is a deed supposedly signed by Indian Sagamores, right, in the text language. So there's this, there's this uh, moment then when The text envisions a transfer of land between Native people and some English subjects, but yet what that transaction means in terms of a shift of sovereignty, the potential for continuing Native sovereignty, uh, what it means for uh, one to make land claims under the sovereignty of England or the U.S., uh, that, that whole context just vanishes. Mm-hmm. So the worthlessness of the deed that's proclaimed at the end is dependent on taking the frame of settler sovereignty and the existence of this jurisdiction, and this coherent jurisdiction, um, taking that as an absolute given, uh, but that taking that as given uh, is um, effaced by this Lockean framework this Lockean ethics in which one imagines an unmediated relationship to the land an unmediated sensory relationship to the land such that one's engagement with the environment is shaped by being within the space of settler sovereignty but The fact of the influence of settler sovereignty is not present to you as a conscious awareness, even though it is part of the very basis for making sense out of your relationship to the environment, your relationship to the land, your relationship to the people um, around you. Uh, And queerness comes in here because um, various... uh, uh, Forms of perversity, including, and I mentioned some of them earlier, um, bachelorhood, spinsterhood, um, onanism, communalism, all of these were also correlated and are correlated in the novel with uh, sort of wrong or pathological relations to land. But yet people who represent these various forms of queerness can all be incorporated into uh, a kind of Lockean household in the wilderness which is not a nuclear family household Mm -hmm. in the end. So they can all be brought in, but yet Native people cannot. And one of the things that I trace through in the uh, chapter is the continuing claims of Penobscot people, uh, the Penobscot people, uh, and of their relationship to other Wabanaki peoples as well as um, Haudenosaunee people uh in um in canada the um uh, seven nations uh of canada with whom penobscot and other um peoples in what's now maine had um uh, an active confederacy so they are complicated native geographies which make absolutely no sense Uh, Within the novel, which the novel and which in those geographies survive until the late 19th century, at least, Mm. uh, as well as have been uh, regenerated within the last uh, 40 years or so, you know, in the last 40 years of now. Um, And uh, but those, those geographies uh, simply cannot enter the understanding of the text because its uh, uh, Lockean frame depends on treating settler sovereignty as given and is shaping the possibility for everyday awareness. But in ways which are not uh, uh, conscious for those who are engaged in uh, uh, that kind of um, Lockean relationship to land. Did Hawthorne himself
1: have any relationship to these struggles in, you know, in terms of land um, and settlement in Maine? Or was he writing at a distance?
0: Um, oh, no, this? he had, had many, many connections to, to Maine. His, um, uh, his mother, um, on his mother's side, he's related to folks who were, I believe, um, uh, his grandfather was an attorney, Uh, for land claims in Maine. He went to Bowdoin, which is sort of right in the area of these land claims. His best uh, uh, friend was connected, you know, was related to folks who were attorneys for the landlords. He, when he was uh, young, I don't know if if he was still in college or not, but um, he went to visit the House of Uh, Colonel Henry Knox, who was one of the most well-known, um, landlords who actually owned the Waldo patent, which is the specific land to which Hawthorne makes reference, uh, in the novel. So he had numerous connections to Maine. Uh, uh, so I think that we can say he would have been well aware of these
1: histories. Mm. So moving, moving South a bit, I suppose, uh, you next take up Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Um, it's obviously another, uh, iconic work, um, I'd say it needs no introduction, but of course you're reading it in a way that, that probably does require us to situate it a, a bit differently. Um, and I'm hoping you can talk a bit about Walden. I'm particularly interested in, um, in the tension in this chapter between, uh, what you're reading as Thoreau's sort of vision of masturbatory personhood, this sort of, you know, purifying regeneration that, uh, requires, uh, you know, voiding native presence. I mean you can you say at some point um you you can be like an Indian but not an actual you know there's there's this relationship between playing at what one believes to be Indian and also avoiding the actual presence of Indian peoples. So you have mm-hmm. that on the one hand. But on the other hand, towards the end of the chapter, you also suggest um some possibilities presented in the text uh about possible queer solidarity with, uh, indigenous self-determination. So, um, I know that's a, a lot of questions to throw out the framing of this, but, um, you know, take them as, as you will.
0: So, um, in that chapter, uh, I'm thinking about how Thoreau is responding to, um, extant discourses of debt, because one of the sort of leitmotifs throughout the, um, uh, the chapters. One is this uh, uh, popular struggle over land against landlords, which is uh, most prominent in uh, the Hawthorne chapter and the Melville chapter, but also there's the uh, legacy of the panics of 1819 and 1837. So it was uh, a run on credit and therefore a run on specie, uh, and the absence of uh, enough specie to match the the, the debt and the, the chains of credit. So the economy basically collapsed, mm. uh, and there were massive depressions following both of those. And both of those were largely set off by issues having to do with forms of speculation and indebtedness around the purchasing of public land. Uh, and uh, uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure many of the, the listeners are well aware of this, but for those who don't know, uh, public land in the history of the U.S. basically is a euphemism for Indian land, right? It's simply land that um, either was recently purchased from Native people or it's uh, Native land, which the U.S. government does not officially recognize as uh, as Native land. So, uh, uh, so thinking about uh, Thoreau's response to debt, right, and the ways that attempting to purchase property – Including a household, including right land, uh, puts you into debt. That um, he's thinking about: well, what would it mean not to be in debt? Right? What would it mean? What what kinds of personhood emerge through debt? And he thinks about these as uh, a kind of wasting and dissipating that one is uh, losing one's very life force in trying to pay off. And in, in many ways, impossibly trying to pay off what one owes in order to purchase this, you know, bit of land, right, that one wants to call one's own. But then he's taking uh, uh, the language of health uh, prominent in uh, the mid-19th century, especially around um, onanism, around masturbation, the sense that – and this is largely drawing on the, the um, writings of Sylvester Graham, who's probably the most famous writer. Um, uh, anti onanist writer of the period, who would talk about masturbation as a stimulation of the nerves that was dissipating, that was wasteful, that would leave you just kind of inert and unable, right, to engage uh, with the world. That one's body would just kind of decompose, right, in the process. So, uh, uh, so that one, so that Thoreau kind of reverses this by saying the effort to kind of work hard and buy land and pay down your debt. That is what is wasting, dissipating, destructive. Your body itself is kind of uh, 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 losing cohesion, right, through the process of that labor. Versus, as he uh, describes his uh, sojourn, right, in um, the wilderness of Walden Pond, um, uh, uh, that the kind of onanistic reflection and reverie that he engages in, he describes that as gathering a sense of selfhood as making possible a kind of coherence of self, which is lost through the economy of debt. But he also presents um, the economy of homemaking and marriage and heteroreproduction. He connects that to property and um, wage, labor, and Debt labor, that's sort of a whole package for him, which is wasting. So kind of withdrawal from all of that into uh, this kind of masturbatory retreat in nature becomes a way of creating a regenerative form of self. So... uh, after sort of tracing that out, then thinking about, well, what is this space, right? Because nature doesn't seem to have characteristics in Walden. It's always the absence of, the absence of the market, the absence of debt, the absence of too many people pressing in on one's space and time and attention. And so thinking about then nature, quote unquote, with a big N, as uh, this kind of space, right, which has this sort of property of escape. And it can exist as this sort of illegal limbo into which uh, one might escape from the demands of the market, but also from laws, the demands of the state, that if in Hawthorne there's this uh, uh, fantasy Lockean fantasy of an unmediated relationship to the land through toil. In Thoreau, there's this fantasy of an unmediated relationship to self through this space called nature. And one of the things I think about is that sense of a space which exists within the jurisdiction of the state but is somehow uh, not encumbered by its laws or is peculiar with respect to these laws. Uh, That seems to match almost exactly the descriptions of the legal status of uh, native space in Massachusetts and the rest of southern New England, where uh, you have the characterization of continued native land tenure on what were called reservations, Uh, uh, state-created reservations originally in the colonies and then under the states, um, uh, but uh, that these spaces were imagined as, were described as peculiar, anomalous, uh, and so you have this space which exists within the state but is not really of it, right? Where it's under the jurisdiction of the state, kind of, but the state's laws don't really apply. So I suggest that the idea of nature as this coherent space of escape that seems to, to lift off almost precisely from Extant representations of the anomalous legal status of native space, right? And of course, it only appears anomalous because of the non-engagement with the ways that continued native land tenure fundamentally disturbs the sovereignty and jurisdiction of settler governance, right? So that in presenting um, native space as anomalous, you take the conflict or tension or antagonism between indigenous sovereignty and settler sovereignty, and you then displace that onto uh, native space as a kind of inherent quality of it, right? It is imminently peculiar, right? It has these uh, inherent properties of not really belonging to the state, and that's precisely what Thoreau picks up on in this representation of nature. Uh, but what I what I suggest, and this is what you were uh, alluding to before, in terms of the the um, possibilities of its uh, uh, sort of onanistic, right, imaginary of this kind of masturbatory personhood, is if is talking about what it means to, to retreat into reverie. Very often, those moments are about literal retreat into an elsewhere, this space which is not transected by the laws of the state, and that space is nature. But at other moments, he talks about reverie as a making unfamiliar of where you are, of a seeing the town of Concord, for example, in very different ways than you're used to seeing it, of a kind of withdrawal from the the sort of sensuous regularities of life in the town that might give one a different kind of perspective. And what I suggest is that um, if one were to take those elements of sort of being able to uh, realign one's habituated sensory relationship to the environment. When we're able to sort of disjoint it enough so that it could become unfamiliar, the space that you regularly inhabit and the ways that you regularly inhabit it could become unfamiliar, right? In and not just in, a, in an abs- abstract. A, a ideal way, but in a physical, sensuous way, could become unfamiliar, then it opens up the potential for seeing differently, including seeing differently the um, basket maker, who's a sort of famous figure in Thoreau who comes looking to sell his baskets, and Thoreau says, uh, uh, you know, sort of makes fun of him, suggesting, oh, he should have learned to um, make baskets in a way that he doesn't need to sell them, that sort of basket making becomes its own end onto itself. Sort sort of like Thoreau's uh, writing and his sojourn at Walden Pond, of course, in a way that utterly eliminates the destitution um, and displacement faced by Native people in New England. But if Thoreau could encounter the basket maker in a different way, could uh, uh, disjoint his habitual ways of engaging with the environment, including his translation of the basket maker as just kind of the anomalous residual Indian, right, but could understand the basket maker as kind of opening onto an ongoing geography and history of settler expropriation, occupation of Native dispossession, of the exploitation of Native people, if that sensory disjunction could open onto a different way of seeing, perhaps there would be a way of uh, coming in a kind of phenomenological way to uh, engage with the ongoing dynamics of settlement in which non-natives participate every day.
1: Mm. I think that's actually uh, a potentially productive transition to um, the discussion of Herman Melville's Pierre, uh, which is taken up in the final chapter, which I'll actually ask you to to introduce a little bit. Uh, It's not a work that I was familiar with before, Um, but... It makes me think about the ways in which cities and New York City itself uh, is probably a space that is even harder in some ways to uh, encounter, to experience... Um, the different sort of geographies, particularly the geographies of indigenous peoples and their claims and their struggles and their rights and their politics, uh, than almost anywhere else that you're assessing, largely because of the way in which, you know, the, and you, you, you gestured this, that the historicity of New York City uh, is is often erased. And also, it's just uh, material space uh, of, of New York City, uh, the, you know, this, you know, massive urban space. It makes it very hard. Uh, for many people to think about, uh, myself included, um, this New York City as, uh, you know, uh, inhabiting uh, a settler colonial space in some ways. So uh, that's a way to sort of get into that because um, one of the things you suggest in the introduction is that um, we need to think about settler common spaces, sorry, settler common sense, even in those spaces where there might not be an active... um, struggle for indigenous land or religious land claim in new york city is probably one example of that so or, um or at least where there's
0: me. not there's sure. there's not perceived to there's be one no, that's right. because often that's in right. new york and new england um that their impression that native people have arrived right after having vanished decades Mm. centuries ago and that they are claiming right lands and there's this sense that um the uh uh, reality itself has somehow broken open right? right and that these claims can't possibly mean anything right and part of what i'm talking about in the book is what allows non-natives to feel that way, Mm -hmm. right? What allows for that sensory experience of profound kind of world-shattering disjunction when you have native people arrive in a space which is thought to be Mm non-native and which is thought to have been cleared of native people and have been making claims, right? And it seems to me it's not just a matter of like, oh, well, things that were thought to be in the past have sort of... Come haunting. I think that it's more than that. Uh, I think that it has to do with the, in an everyday way, how the legalities and histories and geographies of settler governance uh, make possible certain um, everyday forms of, and I use the, the, the language of orientation, momentum, right? Ways of being in the world that as ways of gain their shape and direction from those settler legalities, geographies, et cetera, so that when you have Native people, Right. And this, I mean, there, uh, I was just actually, um, reading a book for review, um, a book co-edited by, um, Gene O'Brien and Amy Denowden, mm-hmm. uh, all about recognition, much of which, which is about, uh, contemporary recognition struggles in New England. And one of the things that the authors constantly come back to is, uh, non-natives' sense of the kind of craziness of mm-hmm. these claims. And they seem crazy because the very sort of physical sense Uh, The very uh, process through which non-Natives compose an environment for themselves on a day-to-day basis presuppose the coherence, endurance, and uh, justness, right, the necessariness of the settler state. So when you have Native people arising, right, arriving, at least from a non-Native perspective, arriving, even though they were always there— This sense of arrival for non natives, right? Then the means that non natives have for making their world coherent in a sensory day to day way gets disrupted, Mm. right? Which I think is partly what explains this like hysteria which uh, uh, develops, like the utter uh, intense craziness right of the response i don't think it can be explained simply by conscious forms of racism although of course there's also that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but, uh, but one thing i also wanted to mention was um before turning to uh, a discussion of chapter three of, of pierre actually it's chapter four but of uh, of pierre um to note that in um, house of seven gables i use penobscot Uh, petitions as a way of understanding continuing forms of uh, Native landedness, collectivity, sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And in the uh, chapter on Thoreau, I use William Apis's Indian Nullification, uh, which is his book about the struggle of the mashpee, as well as a range of petitions from peoples in Massachusetts uh, as a way of situating um, uh, the dynamics of Indian policy there and the kind of geographies of uh, Native endurance and of self-determination um in um uh lower new england mm, mm. so in terms of pierre pierre is a uh, uh, I was going to say, one of Melville's crazier novels, Melville has a range of crazy novels, uh, but um, this one uh, is about a family, the Glenn Dinnings, who are a wealthy landed family in upstate New York, uh, and they are a part of a group that were known as the Patroons, which are um, families whose claims... Uh, reach back um, into the uh, late 17th century, and they have tenants. Uh, They have tenants for life or for lives on their land, but technically, they're still tenants. And uh, you have uh, an insurgency in upstate New York in the 1840s, uh, the Anti-Rent Wars, which was about trying to challenge the title of um, these patroons, of these landlords, and the Glendinnings are um, are part of this group. And Melville, not unlike Hawthorne, Melville, uh, his family was connected to um, uh, uh, the patroons. He was related to some. Um, his, you know, uh, uh, members of his family were- with some of the most famous patroons, including the, um, uh, uh, Rens- the uh, Van Rensselaer family. Uh, so he, would, he was well aware, would have been well aware of um, these struggles. So you have Pierre, who is the um, son of uh, uh, you know, the uh, latest generation for one of these families, the Glendinnings, and he finds out what he thinks is that his father had an affair and that there's this unrecognized daughter and rather than um sort of shattering people's uh sense of his father he um uh said claims to have married her and then uh you know breaking his mother's heart and whatever and they uh sort of abscond to new york and they sort of have this kind of quasi-bohemian existence in new york um until everyone ends up dying Hmm. um because it's through a complicated series of dynamics i don't need to get into uh but um so it's about the uh uh, property struggle in upstate new york uh, and uh the flight to new york city and what i argue about the flight to new york city is it's seen as this kind of escape from the intractable uh problems of uh property and state-sponsored violence around property uh in upstate New York, right, that the city seems this kind of um, chaotic space. Uh, It's so big, and it's so dense, and um, uh, it's so opaque, that law can't really actually function there. So even though uh, the novel uh, rejects something like an escape into nature, right? So we don't have the Lockean logic of Hawthorne. We don't have the uh, nature as this sort of pristine space to find another kind of selfhood that we do uh, in Thoreau. But the city seems to offer uh, something of a s- space of escape. And a space of escape in which various kinds of perversities, which challenge the sort of ancestral inheritance line of uh, something like property upstate, right? Those kinds of perversities, queernesses can multiply in um, a process that I think that the uh, uh, the text um, revels in. Right. That the, the, the these um, uh, multiplication of forms of depravity that uh, challenge the kind of genealogical transmission of property, which is the model of state. But so so one of the things I don't think about in the in this chapter, I don't think about. Um, Native peoples who would have claims to the land of New York City, nor do I think about Native people living in New York City, although those would both be very interesting lines to to pursue. Mm-hmm. Instead, what I think about is the relationship between the city and the country, uh, uh, you know, country in scare quotes, uh, because uh, the novel seems to imagine that somehow in moving to the city, one could – Break away from the uh, sort of unethical, state-sanctioned violence of property in the country. Somehow, the uh, inhabitants in the city frees one from those problematic right, forms of inheritance and landedness that you know the the, the text wants uh, a way out of, and uh, so that the the rural uh, becomes uh, the space of uh, this. Uh, uh, Inherently problematic uh, form of, uh, you know, property displacement. You know, violence around property and property claims, et cetera, and the city becomes this alternative. So it's then thinking about well, how does New York emerge as a city? The very kinds of size, commerce, density uh, of population, all of that, uh, that makes New York an attractive space of escape. Uh, well, that arises precisely because of the building of the Erie Canal. That until the Erie Canal, New York cannot support that kind of population because there isn't enough commerce to make living there viable because you can't get enough foodstuffs in. And once you have the Erie Canal, not only does it open up waves of commerce, but it radically extends where you can be getting food from in order to feed the uh, uh, the massive number of people right uh, who are coming to populate New York. The Erie Canal is is built through the expropriation of Haudenosaunee or Iroquois lands. And this is going on through the 1850s when uh, Melville is writing and publishing Pierre and and even afterwards so it's the novel so the, the chapter is connecting um, this sense of New York as the space of escape from the problems of landedness and property and state sanctioned title that uh, that very idea of New York as an escape requires editing out the material and ongoing processes of expropriation of native lands through which, New York City becomes what we know as New York City, mm. and here uh, in this chapter, I'm thinking a lot about the um, Treaty of Buffalo Creek, uh, which uh, is first promulgated in 1838, and it's about um, uh, uh, the Seneca supposedly ceding their um, reservations in New York for um, land in uh, uh, I'm forgetting whether it's Minnesota or Wisconsin, but sort of in the Great Lakes area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a fight to uh, against this, this treaty and it leads to a reformed treaty but the um, Tonawanda reservation is still lost as part of that treaty uh, which is um, ratified in 1842 uh, and so there's a continuing struggle for the Tonawandas to regain their land which goes on for almost two decades after that uh, and they eventually are able to, um, to repurchase part of their reservation uh, so uh, I'm looking a lot at documents Documents uh, and memorials and um, text generated Seneca text generated around the struggle over the Treaty of Buffalo Creek and uh, what happens in its wake.
1: Hmm. You know, as you were describing this, I, I was reminded of um, a, a novel I'm almost finished with by T.C. Boyle called At World's End. Have you have you come across this? It's also, no, it. yeah, it also deals with the history. Yeah, it's also deals with the history of land ownership and the patroons in Upstate New York. Mm. Um, so. By way of getting towards the conclusion, I know I've kept you for a while, and uh, I can hear your voice is starting to. to
0: I was going to say more little. like more like I've kept you for a while. Not at all. Not at all. Um, I want
1: to. I want to sort of come back to where we started around the question of settler common sense, uh, because while the core of this book is obviously an analysis of 19th century literary texts, um, you quite clearly in our conversation today and in the rest of the book have a, a much broader. Um, uh, sort of project or intervention in mind uh, than changing how we reread these texts. So obviously that is important. And um, I hope this book contributes to that. Uh, in the introduction, you you conclude that your aim, among other things, is to, quote, shift the momentum of non-Native feeling, imagination, and knowledge away from a field of possibility bounded by and oriented around settlement, instead taking Indigenous survival and self-determination as the ethical horizon uh, towards which we all might move. How do you envision um, the relationship between the work you're doing here in this book uh, and moving us towards that that larger vision? I guess another way of saying it is how you know how might we go about um, in quotidian ways and in larger ways unraveling and challenging. Uh, the settler common sense, which binds so much of our thinking and our movement and our speech. And I know that's a big question to end, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on it by way of conclusion.
0: In thinking about settler common sense, part of what I wanted to, and I sort of gestured toward this at the beginning of the conversation, what I wanted to get away from was the sense of um, forms of Explicit thinking about native people or conquest, conscious commitments, ideologies, kinds of propositions, which could be uh, directly critiqued or falsified, instead trying to think about everyday processes, which are not acts of thought, so that the effort to uh, Treat them as if they were propositions, as if you could say, "Well, that idea about the world is false and as if that could somehow produce change mm-hmm. seemed to me to fundamentally misunderstand the dynamic uh, and I think this is, this is a kind of left progressive problem uh, the idea that somehow you can explain things away mm. uh, and that that the way that change happens is through uh, modes of right thinking and feeling. Mm. And so, one of the things that they say in the book is this isn't about Hawthorne, those attitudes toward Indians, right? They could have been pro removal, they could have been anti removal. It's largely irrelevant. Um, because what I'm suggesting is that the uh, uh, shape and direction and momentum and force of their way of framing ethical issues, right, that the uh, impulse there, Right is is shaped around taking settler legalities right as the f- uh, fixed reference points for uh, uh, what it means to be in the world, right? So that th- those can't be um, uh, you can't dissuade someone of that. Mm. So uh, so part of what I'm gesturing toward in the book is. The sense that it requires an interruption of daily rhythms. It requires as as you uh, suggested in the uh, uh, the quote, or as I suggested in the quote you read from me, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a reorientation, a kind of turning. Right? If we can think about uh, uh, the ways that um, settler law and geographies and jurisdiction uh, patterns non-native behavior and action in the world, then we're talking about a certain kind of regularity there. It's, it's, it's a phenomenological regularity. It's a sensuous regularity. It's not a regularity of thought. But if it's a regularity, it might be possible to interrupt it, to, to move it toward a different kind of pattern. Uh, does uh, talking about those forms of patterning open up possibilities for repatterning? Yes. But part of what the book is dwelling in is the intransigence of those patterns. This is not about a conscious commitment to um, something like reconciliation, right? Or, uh, uh, you know, thinking of Indians as noble or thinking of of Native people as an object with which one can identify. Uh, There's not an easy out Because uh, what I'm suggesting is that uh, non-native modes of being in the world are shaped in uh, uh, enduring and powerful and non-conscious ways by uh, the dynamics of non-native occupation and native dispossession. So I don't know that there's an easy uh, way out, but I do think that uh, trying to think about the entrenchedness, trying to think about the quotidianness, trying to think about the process by which settler colonialism happens, even when no one's talking or thinking about settler colonialism or talking or thinking about Native people, I think trying to develop the capacity to expand uh, the sense of the presence of settler colonial dynamics in that way at least opens possibilities for then beginning to move toward what a reorientation might look like. If you don't see the orientation, if you don't see the patterning, there can be no reorientation.
1: Well, I've been speaking with Mark Rifkin. He's the author of the brand new book, Settler Common Sense, Queerness, and Everyday Colonialism in the American Renaissance. It's just out from the University of Minnesota Press. Congratulations, Mark. It's a phenomenal book and a very important read.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you again for uh, inviting me on the show.
1: Thank you. That was Mark Rifkin, author of Settler Common Sense, Queerness and Everyday Colonialism in the American Renaissance, just published from the University of Minnesota Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts free of charge. We're also, of course, on Facebook and Twitter. Next episode features an interview with Claudio Sant on his new book, West of the Revolution, An Uncommon History of 1776. So stay tuned. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.